what happened is when I was researching, actually my first intent was understanding how great companies use design and innovation to become relevant and to become successful. And the more I looked at these 50 companies, I realized they use design, innovation, and storytelling. This is the third element I sort of uncovered to really build what I would call a timeless brand, a brand that was known for something that was very relevant to their customers, that was relevant today, but is also relevant yesterday, and it is going to be relevant tomorrow. They had this ability to create a timeless, distinctive relevance. Hello and welcome to the Ecom Ops Podcast. We believe that there is more than enough content focused on e-commerce marketing and not enough content celebrating the real heroes of e-commerce, those running the operation. Each week, we find and interview an e-commerce operations expert to share the secrets behind how some of this industry's most exciting businesses are run. I'm your host, Norbert Strapler, the CEO of SingSpider. Hello and welcome to another Ecom Ops podcast. Today I'm talking to Soon Yu from the SCY Advantage, so an official consulting and speaking company founded by Soon Yu, who is an international speaker and the best-selling author. And yeah, he knows a lot about strategies helping companies from startups to Fortune 500 companies develop great, great ideas about how to grow. And he also released uh, his first book on the topic in uh, February 2018. Yeah, I'm yeah. right. Titled Ionic Advantage, which instantly became a bestseller on Amazon. Welcome to the show soon. Thank you so much for having me, Norbert. Yeah, I'm more than welcome that you are here. So how did you get first into e-commerce soon? <laughs> I would say definitely by accident. Back in I want to say 1998. If you can remember that far back. I, I can. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first dot-com wave. And I was actually quite involved in that. I um, actually was working at a big company called Clorox. Uh, they make a bleach, but they also make many, many different types of consumer products. It's uh, maybe a smaller version of Procter & Gamble, which I'm sure you're familiar with, right? Yep. And I left Clorox because I had this retail idea to develop a retail site for people that suffered from allergies and asthma. So it was really a store to help you breathe happier and healthier. And I left, I went to work at another big company that just did retail, making $5 an hour, okay, at Crate and Barrel. You know Crate and Barrel? It's a, they yep. sell like, you know, yep, okay, furniture, wine glasses, whatever. And I worked there for a full year to basically learn the physical retail and everything from inventory to returns to obviously merchandising. And um, while I was doing that, I was writing my business plan for the store that I called Gazoontype. <laughs> so again, it was mainly focused on helping people breathe happier and healthier. And it took me a year to raise the first million dollars of capital. I knocked on probably a uh, over a hundred different investors' doors, and finally, maybe a couple said yes. And so, with the million dollars, I said, "Wonderful! I'm going to open a retail store." I didn't realize that opening a retail store uh, took quite a while, especially if you needed to do the pictures and, and design. And so, while we were building the physical store and getting all the merchandise, I was looking around me, 
And I was in Silicon Valley at the time. And everybody was launching a dot-com. So I said, okay, during the downtime when the store was not open, I said, why don't I just take this catalog that I have of products and I'll start taking pictures of things. And then I will create a very simplistic e-commerce site. I think the first e-commerce platform we built was like around $20,000 US from scratch, okay? And then we started putting the pictures on and the price in, and then we typed in all the information. And then by the time we opened the store, which took nine months from when we began to when we actually opened, we also had the website ready. And we also actually had a physical catalog. So on day one of the launch of Gesundheit, we launched e-commerce, a catalog, and a physical store. And all of a sudden, within Silicon Valley, we were known as the poster children of bricks and clicks or the multi-omni-channel experience. And it was all by accident, all by accident. Wow, but that's <laughs> insane. And what, what was the year when you 1998, I think, is when we opened, April of 98 is when we opened the store. Oh, okay? wow. that's, yeah. that's so really amazing. The yeah. yeah, so that's a long time ago, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and if any of your um, listeners uh, want to look me up on Wikipedia, what they'll find is that the Zoom type was something that was very successful for a little while, maybe like a year, year and a half. But like everybody else, we raised a lot of money. And then honestly, we spent it way too fast. I think for every dollar we earned in revenue, we spent $4. Oh, wow. <laughs> Remember, that was back in 99, the big dot com, right? And we had the same investors as another infamous website called pets.com, right? Mm -hmm. And just like pets, we went bankrupt. We flamed out. And so if you read my wiki profile, it'll say that the Gesundheit experience and me specifically are known as the poster child of web excess and stupidity. That's me. <laughs> cool. But that's something, you know, I really, I really like it. I mean, you were one of the first people that had a website and tried to sell goods on the website. So this is really amazing. Yeah. Early adopter, the earliest adopter even. So uh, that's, early, that's really great. Accidental yeah. early adopter. <laughs> accidental early adopter, yeah. I recently watched uh, Pam and Tom on uh, Disney+. Plus, mm. And it was a really fun experience because when... I'm at spoiler alert, so turn off now if... Uh, yeah. But when the, the plumber watched... Uh, or the, I don't know if it was a plumber or... Uh, I don't know anymore, but... That he tried to search a specific good on the internet. And it was really the time when there was no web shops really out there. And you really heard this. <laughs> when it came into the internet and then really it took some time to build out the page. But finally, he found that good, what he's looking for on the internet and took a call to order it. And I mean, this is over. When you look for something, you just go on Google, you go on Amazon and yeah, that's it. It actually sometimes it's already in your basket before you know it because they already yeah. anticipate, yeah. right? They're already yeah. telling you, here's your recommendation engine. You're like, oh yeah, I, I was wish I was already it already anticipates for you. But it's funny, the noise that you're making is a very iconic noise because I remember it. It was back for us, the AOL is what I use, dial-up modem. Remember the dial-up modem? Yeah, the dial-up modems. <laughs> so great. <laughs> then I mean you finally connect. <laughs> I mean, I have kids uh, and my son is 10 years old and also to get 10. So when we tell from the past, I mean, 
they do not even realize that we did not have something like a smartphone. I mean, we, <laughs> we needed to be on a specific place to take a phone call. Huh? Yeah. That, yeah. That, that was the time when we grew up. So this is really yeah. amazing how everything developed. But it's okay. So you had the store and you had the, the web shop, uh, the very early version of it. So really great. Yeah. How did you become an author? Oh, it was probably through a series of many ups and downs, mostly a lot of downs, right? And in doing a lot of things wrong, I kind of had a lot of curiosity. How are other people doing it better than I was doing it? And that curiosity oftentimes led me to do what I would call benchmarking of other companies that I respected. And so in learning about what other companies are doing, I just started to realize, hey, there's some patterns that these companies all follow, you know, whether it be a strategy, a set of principles, and then best practices. And then it dawned on me that, hey, I learned so much from researching companies like Nike, Burberry, Amazon, Google, you, you know, a whole bunch. And I said, what could I then discern and help other people understand what they've done intentionally well? And in that sort of curiosity, and part of it is I'm such a brand nerd. I'm really interested in the idea of how brands are created and then how we humans actually have relationships with brands, almost the same type of relationship we have with other humans. Right? We fall in love with brands. We fall out of love with brands. We get frustrated with brands. Sounds like a relationship brand. Right? And so I, from that curiosity, was born out an idea of a book. And I decided to start writing it out. And then basically, I left my last job and I put this into a manuscript and it got picked up. And so it wasn't accidental, it was definitely more intentional, but it was a situation where I went to the school of hard knocks. I went to the school of uh, failing quite often and then really trying to figure out how other people did it better. And in that school, I learned so much that I thought I could help other people too. Mm -hmm. Cool. And now I think the most important thing, it's an award-winning solution. So iconic advantage. What does that mean? What is it all about? Sure. So it was what happened is when I was researching, actually, my first intent was understanding how great companies use design and innovation to become relevant and to become successful. And the more I looked at these 50 companies, I realized they use design, innovation, and storytelling. This is the third element I sort of uncovered to really build what I would call a timeless brand, a brand that was known for something that was very relevant to their customers, that was relevant today, but is also relevant yesterday, and it is going to be relevant tomorrow. They had this ability to create a timeless, distinctive relevance. And then I started to understand that if you have longevity for that distinctive relevance, then you become the standard bearer for that distinctive relevance. And eventually, you become iconic for that distinctive relevance. And so that was what Iconic Vantage is all about, is actually how might you build a more timeless brand? And so what I do in the book is I reverse engineer what these great companies do. It works for startups. It works for you, me, on a personal level. It works for your podcast. It works for a big Fortune 500 companies. And so it works across the gamut, the key principles of building what I would consider a timeless brand. And just so you know, very quick, so you hope buy the book. But if you don't, if, here's a quick synopsis. When we started to write the book, we thought about what makes a brand iconic? And there were only three main qualities that all these iconic brands shared. One of them was distinction. They had something that they were known for that made them stand out versus the competition. So that was number one. Number two 
was this idea that whatever the distinction was, it was relevant. It was important. It was meaningful. And that relevancy, like I told you, was more about not today only, but yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So there's this timeless element. And then lastly, they got recognized for that distinctive relevance. And so if you have those three qualities, which is distinction, relevance, and recognition, you are on your way or on your path over time to become iconic. So knowing that those are the three qualities, what can you do about them? So the first thing I always talk about businesses is, do you have good noticing power? Do you stand out versus the competition? If I only ask three of your consumers or customers, what makes Norbert really unique or the, his, his podcast unique? One, could they say anything? Hopefully they pass that test. They could say something okay, that you're known for. Like e-com. Okay, great. You're the number one uh, podcast for e-com. So that's great. That's your thing. The other thing is, if those three people, hopefully they don't say three different things. They all say the three same things. And then lastly, is what they say, it makes it, your competitors can't say it. That's even more powerful, right? So that's about noticing power. The next one is what I call staying power. So it's the idea of how do I stick around? How do I make whatever I'm known for relevant, not only today, but tomorrow? So that's about staying power. And then the last one is once you have something that's distinctively relevant, how do you scale it to get as much recognition as possible? So that's scaling power. So create noticing power staying power, and then scaling power around what you're known for, you will then be on your path to becoming iconic. That's really interesting. I mean, when do I need to be iconic or have an iconic brand? Is it always important if I'm a startup and not just, yeah, starting up and uh, have something brands or is it just important for big brands? What do you think? What is your experience with that? So let me just say off the bat, not everybody needs to be iconic. Look, you can create a very successful business. There are a lot of businesses that no one's ever heard about, right? They're B2B or you yeah. know, even they're B2C, but they're small. They service a small, very small thing, but that's fine. What I found though in the research is those brands that had iconic franchises or products or brands inside the portfolio were much more profitable than any of the other non-iconic products inside their portfolio or versus the competitors that had less iconic products. The premium that people pay to be attached to or want an iconic product is very high. And the loyalty that it achieves is also very high. Now, you're asked a very important question, which is, is this important for a startup? Is that something that you'd want to even think about a startup? I always say this, and this applies to e-commerce companies too. Look, a lot of um, the startups I work with, They think I'm going to be successful because I'm going to be the first to market. So speed, I'm going to be the fastest. Or no, I'm going to be the largest at scale versus any of my other startup competitors. Okay, mm -hmm. so then maybe it's I'm the largest. No, I'm going to have the best technology, the best bells and whistles that people will know me for, the best features. And I always say this, Norbert. I say, look, it isn't always the biggest, the fastest, or the baddest mousetrap that gets the mice. It's the one with the stinkiest cheese. So even in day one, you need to think about how might I create stinky cheese about whatever I'm doing? And I define stinky cheese as having something that you're known for that really stands out and a great story behind that. And oftentimes that will be much more important than being the biggest, the baddest, or the fastest mousetrap out there. That's really interesting. So I meant that I've read a lot about building a story around a brand. This is, I think, really important. 
at least what I've found out in the past. What do you think are the biggest mistakes that companies make when it comes to build a brand or an iconic brand? I think the biggest mistake is this. They come out and then they're known for something that people love. Okay. And then they hire a bunch of new people in and they go, that's boring. That's so yesterday. Whatever people love. People are changing. We got a new Gen Z, Gen X, Gen whatever. And they don't want that. And so they throw out everything that the previous regime created, right? Because you got oh, yeah. new people in, you know, and now we've got to bring in our own ideas. And so what happens is certain brands, often like every three or four years, there's like new identity, you know, like I feel like Pepsi is that way sometimes, you know, like it's, oh, you know, we're going to talk about this. Oh no, let's add a new star here versus Coke, which is very consistent oftentimes in what they're about. And so what happens is you get turnover in personnel. And then honestly, even businesses get tired of talking about the same thing, right? I mean, it's just natural. It's human nature, okay? But I always say this, don't chase the new. Innovate the old, <laughs> okay? So what I mean by that is, if there is something that you are really well-known for, something that people love about you, then create an innovation pipeline to make whatever that point of distinction always new and fresh and relevant and, and current. Always try to surprise people about the same thing. So you can take all your shiny new ideas and all the bells and whistles that you're hearing from other people, and instead of just chasing it and doing it anywhere, take all that shiny new ideas, but focus it on the old. Focus it on where you already are known, where you already have momentum, where people already love you, where people already give you credit for. And if you do that, then you will stay relevant forever. But it's when people abandon what they're known for and try to be known for new things that pretty soon after five or 10 years, people go, I don't really know what they're, I'm so confused. Who are they? Like they've been known for three different things and I'm not sure who they are anymore. So that is my suggestion in terms of what people need to do to stay relevant. That's really helpful. Thank you very much. In your opinion, because we're in e-commerce, so in your opinion, what is the key to successfully building the iconicity of an e-commerce business? Well, I think there's two things to think about when you're doing e-commerce. And I've been reading a lot of these studies that say it's all about reducing effort for people and making things seamless or frictionless. And in fact, one of the reasons we're speaking is because I actually have a new book coming out called Friction, right? And it's all talking about the idea of um, how do you create great brands by actually not taking away friction, but adding it back in. <laughs> and so what I talk about is the idea that there's bad friction, you know, stuff that frustrates you. Like if you were going on a chat line to try to resolve a return issue, and it takes you 40 minutes to get a hold of somebody, and then you have to send all this information, and they don't know your order number, and oh, you know, you're like, and you have to re-give them your credit card, and all that is bad friction. Anything that creates redundancy, anything that creates frustration or agitation, that's bad friction. You need to get rid of that. So my counsel is everything that everybody has written about, absolutely get rid of that bad friction. But understand that not all friction is bad. There is also good friction, okay? Friction that people go, wow, this is engaging. I, oh, I mean, honestly, when people put up videos or reviews or stuff like that, that's actually good friction. It makes people dwell longer, spend more time, invest more of their consideration on you. But that's good friction because 
even though they're spending more time with you, it's enjoyable time. It is time worth their sort of worth their effort and worth their. So I really encourage companies to think about when they're trying to build e-commerce websites. Yes, take away the pain point, but don't just stop there. Okay. Then think about in this canvas that I've created where it's sort of pain free. How might I add a couple of surprises, a couple of areas where I actually make people think or even sweat or laugh or just want to like share it with somebody else, engage them. I mean, um, gamers did it forever. They would do things. I think what they call them, they're Easter eggs, right? Yeah. Easter eggs are a form of friction. They could just say, hey, press this button, do that button and done. You're done, done, done. That's easy. No, no, no. Easter eggs are like, I got to find them first. And then... Oftentimes, they're not exactly straightforward. You get this Easter egg and you go, what do I do with that? I'll, I need to go into touch to have a conversation with the community and look at the FAQs. And, oh, this Easter egg only works in this situation. Oh, and all of a sudden, you learn this whole new language. Like, uh, there's this favorite hamburger place I love in the, in the U.S. called In-N-Out. And they have a secret menu. It's not posted there. And they probably sell 20, 30% of their business on this secret menu. But the people in the know? It makes them feel included that they know about a secret menu, just like a secret Easter egg. So I would think about how do you add surprise, excitement, exclusivity, meaning in your e-commerce experience while you take away all the pain points. That's really, really cool. I love that. So and Easter eggs is really something that people are really liking and talking about. And it's some nice kind of friction, as you said. So it's really yeah. fun, actually. If you had two or three tips for our community to build an ionic brand, to build that friction, what tips would you give to have successful starting points for building an iconic brand? I think the first thing is obviously understand your customer. Everyone talks about that. And then make, meet them where they're at in terms of, okay, if you're building an e-commerce website and it's all about selling a product or service, Make sure that you do what I call point of parity, what they expect a minimum in terms of service level, in terms of returns, in terms of selection, okay? But then think about within what you're doing, whether it be maybe it's your assortment, maybe it's the way you present the information, maybe it's your reviews are actually, the way they are done, they're kind of different. Think about one thing that people enjoy spending time on and think about doing it better. Think about actually how might I make people spend more time on something that people, my other competitors, are not even considering. So let's just take the idea. Maybe I'm just brainstorming with you, but maybe it's the idea of reviews, right? Mm -hmm. That not only that are you have reviews, but that let's just say your community was so adamant about their reviews that they there was this call it if you want to become uh, you get a badge. And on the badge, it says, I'm a super reviewer, and I'm such a super reviewer that I will have an office hour, <laughs> okay, that e-commerce website actually hosts, that I, will, yeah. I bought enough of these products, and I'm available for 15 minutes on this day if you have any other questions. Maybe no one takes advantage of it, but wow, that's an interesting feature. And it, then you actually have more confidence in this reviewer because they're going to put themselves out there and be available for 15 minutes next Tuesday to talk about the product. And you may not attend that, but knowing that that person is willing to stake their reputation and be available 
you'd be like, I trust that review better than anybody else. And all of a sudden, you then kind of create a competition of kind of like what Airbnb, they have the host, but then they have the super host, and then they have the super, super host, right? So also you create a competition of, I want to be the best reviewer, right? And so beyond putting up a TikTok, whatever, it's just, I'm, I've just offered office hours about my review. I just made that up with you. Okay. I didn't, I mean, okay. So we've taken the idea of reviews and turned them into something much more special, much more meaningful. Maybe it's only marketing, but hey, we've created greater friction, both for the person reading the review, but obviously the people that need to leave the review. Yeah, absolutely. That's a nice, nice idea. Like that. What I see and what I hear is make something different, but try to, yeah, you said it already. Don't chase the new, innovate the old. So I like also this. Yeah. This is really an interesting approach. Last question for today. Who has taught you the most about e-commerce in your career? Who <laughs> taught me the most? Gesundheit. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, one of the people I respect when it comes to e-commerce is one of my mentors is Iris Yen. You can look her up. It's Iris and then Y-E-N. She is the head of digital commerce. And now she's kind of one of the CTOs at Nike. And what they've done over at Nike, especially uh, when she ran uh, Nike China e-commerce, is they added, obviously, they did all the right things in terms of making sure that you can find the product quickly, you can have a wide selection of all the stuff that you would expect. But then they gamified their collections, like their special collections. They figured out a way to actually make it very difficult to find out or even get in the queue to buy the latest collection, right? You first were given some type of Easter egg and then the community would share it out. You'd have to decipher it. You'd realize, oh my God, I need to go to a public square like Tenement Square, okay? And actually take my phone, download an app, and then point the phone in different ways to see a floating number up in some space in the square. Then you'd have to write that number down Then you have to go back onto the website and then you have to type that in. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff. But eventually you're in the queue. Not you didn't get the product, but you're in the queue to potentially buy the product. Wow. All that gamification created incredible demand. And you saw people running to these squares and you see all those people pointing up their phones in like space with augmented reality. It, it was incredible. And so that's something that she's incredible in terms of figuring out engagement with the audience. And then how to, and then the other thing she really did is figure out how do I work with the ecosystem of, I think they have like a T-Mall or something where there's different malls, online malls, and create both a frictionless experience in terms of being on that mall, but also one that added good friction to create more engagement. So that's somebody I learned a lot from. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think... One company that really makes it very good is Apple. <laughs> I mean, every time a new iPhone comes out, you see those long lanes yeah, before the stores. And there is rarely enough for everyone who wants a new, the new phone. And see yep. it here as well. We don't have that much Apple stores, but they are, of course, in, in a lot of different markets. But if there is a new phone, I mean, the pre-orders are there since months already. Absolutely. And then they get shipped months, months later than, than expected. So there Actually, is, you, of course, You bring up wrong. Apple. Can I share one story Yeah, absolutely. About Apple? Please. So here's a good example of good and bad fiction. Okay. So here's bad fiction. 
let's say you and I wanted to buy a flash drive, okay? So either we go to Amazon or I, for you, you might be a different website, right? And you buy the flash drive. Maybe we go to a physical store and we go to Best Buy for us. It's this big box that sells a lot of electronics. But whatever we buy, it ends up being shipped to us or we, we bring it home in a big, what I call plastic clam shell. It's actually this big plastic that sort of is hard pressed on top of this little flash drive. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of plastic, right? So then we have to take our scissors and cut it open. And then we even have to pry it open, right? And, and like we're ripping our fingers to try to get to this little, <laughs> this little piece of flash drive with so much plastic and packaging. That's bad friction. It may take you three or four minutes to open that package. Well, Apple, most Apple packages take upwards of 20 to 30 minutes before what I would consider you are fully unpacked. Oh, okay? yeah. <laughs> because they have purposely designed their packaging to be like a treasure chest because they know that what they sell is treasure, right? It is gold. It is jewels. And they obviously create the packaging where it's something where you're unveiling one layer over the next layer. And then sometimes on those layers, there's instructions. And so it's not like you can just like open it up and it's done. My son, when he got his Apple Watch, it took him a half an hour, but he loved that half an hour because he's putting in his personal information and he's getting, he's getting response back, you know, and it was just very interactive and he was learning and being educated. That is good friction. It took a half an hour for him to get his Apple Watch up and running. If it took two hours, he would have done it because for him, the way it was done was so engaging. The packaging was so engaging. And so that's good friction. Yeah, it's really, and it's really a good experience and you have fun while doing that. It's not only Apple anymore. I've seen it a lot uh, also for other providers that are copying now, I think, or that have the same idea <laughs> at the same time, maybe. But I've seen it also for the other soft or smartphone providers without naming them, but they all play the same game now. So a package of a smartphone actually is a package that Apple had a few, few years before and doing the same now for every other experience. But it's really for every well-branded smartphone provider or computer provider, they all play with the packaging game now and provide yep, that, that positive friction, actually. Yep. You really like it. Soon, thank you so much for your time. We're already longer than expected, as usual. <laughs> but thank you so much. It was really fun talking to you, learning so much about that. And guys, two great books from Soon out there. Iconic Advantage from 2018. I'm sure you find it still on Amazon. And the new book called Friction. And you should take it, read it. It's really very interesting what I hear today. So I think the books are the same and it's very interesting topics that are covered here. So thank you very much. And thank you. Yeah, more than welcome. And guys, don't forget to hit the subscribe button to get the new episodes of the e-commerce podcast. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for this episode of the e-commerce podcast. If you enjoyed listening and would like us to find and interview more e-commerce operations experts, please search for e-commerce podcast in your favorite podcast listening app and then subscribe, rate, and review. Until next time.